glorious good news. Even though sin abounds, His grace superabounds. Amen. This time, I want to dismiss the children that have pre-registered for children's worship to meet Pastor Nathan and Miss Amy over at the door uh, back there that is open, and they can be dismissed to children's worship at this time. So if you want to walk them over there or dismiss them. Now, while they're making their way there, I want to ask those of you that are remaining to please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. This morning, we'll be looking at the end of verse 4 through verse 15. So John, Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 4 through 15 will be our text this morning. As you're turning there, I want to, to share with you just another update on my daughter, Emma. I'm beginning to sound very repetitive, I know, but the Lord has been very gracious these last three weeks. She is continuing to clear her throat, clear her passageway through some very strong coughs. We're still seeing movement in her, her legs. Uh, in therapy, uh, two week, a week ago, she actually was able to initiate turning over on her own and did it three times on command. Uh, so we are very thankful. And just to keep praying, we've been praying for things like this for uh, four years now. And just to keep persevering in your prayers, and we give God the glory for these things. So thank you very much. Let's give the Lord praise. Amen. Amen. I want to begin reading with the latter part of verse 14. But before I start, I want to remind you that what we have been reading since the very first verse of chapter 13 all the way through the end of chapter 17 takes place on the night Jesus was arrested. These chapters record his last words to his disciples, their last meeting before Jesus is taken away, executed, and buried. To me, that means these words take on a level of poignancy. It's not that what Jesus said earlier is any less true, but to me, when you're approaching your death and you know it, you don't have time for dealing with things that are extemporaneous or things that are superfluous. You, got, you, you need to focus on what really needs to be said. So let's hear the word of our Lord, starting at the latter part of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Let's pray together. 
Oh, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to know you better this morning. Lord, I am so grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Your Spirit dwells within every believer and truly brings to bear the truth, the prophecy of Emmanuel. You are with us. But Father, we live in a world where busyness and the demands of life will often quench the work of the Spirit. So Father, help us to see beyond these things that would pull us away from you. And bring us, Father, to abide in your shadow this morning. Let the fullness of your Spirit rest within us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. There are only two times in my life that I've been on a sailboat. Enjoyed both of them tremendously. But I'm not quite ready to become an avid sailor by any means. But I want to ask you for just a few moments to imagine something with me. Imagine that you have decided to take up sailing as a hobby. And you decided to go all in. You began learning, you're reading about what it means, how to operate a sailboat. You've looked up on YouTube instructional videos on what to do. You've even gone down to the marina. You've talked with people who sail regularly and you are soaking up all that you can. And finally the day comes for you to go to Boone Lake because there's water in it now. To, to, to put your sailboat in the water. And as you launch out, everything you've read is in your mind. Everything you've heard is in your thinking. And you are ready to go when you realize just one very crucial truth. No matter how much you know or how well prepared you are, if God does not send wind, your sailboat's not going anywhere. Many ways that's a picture of the church. We can and should make plans. We can and should engage in programs. But if the Spirit of God does not move, we will not go anywhere. It's not by coincidence that the Spirit of God, when He descended in Acts chapter 2, was described and felt and experienced as a mighty rushing wind with power to move things forward. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure, he talked about the Holy Spirit. Now I recognize that in many ways, talk of the Holy Spirit makes us a little bit uncomfortable. I think there are many reasons that we get a little bit uh, at e unease about the Holy Spirit. One is because of the extremes that the Holy Spirit is often dealt with and taught today. A few years ago, there was one extreme where a group, a church, began to teach that a sign that the Holy Spirit had come upon you was this, that the Holy Spirit would change your fillings in your teeth to gold dust. I'm not, I'm not making this up. They took a psalm where the psalm said, Your Spirit fills my mouth with gold. And they said, Man, if the Spirit's dwelling upon you, gold dust. Now, if that happens, there are offering baskets at the door. That's, that's not a sign of the filling of the Holy Spirit. There are others that go to the extreme of even denying the divinity of the Holy Spirit. That deny the Spirit actually exists. For some, discomfort with the Holy Spirit comes because when the Spirit shows up, He reminds us that we are not in control. The Holy Spirit has a way of changing agendas and plans to meet God's and that can make us a little bit uncomfortable. But we need to get over our discomfort. 
We need to embrace the Holy Spirit. We need to come back to the necessity of the Holy Spirit. And more than that, we need to come back to realize our dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus was very clear in verses 4 through 7 that it was to our advantage that he goes away. Leaving is never easy. And Jesus has been preparing the disciples for his departure. And in doing so, he reminds them that it's for their good. Now, he starts at the end of verse 4 by saying, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Now, the things are referencing the persecution he just prepared them for. Jesus has told them that they are going to suffer because of their faith. He's saying that people will mock them, persecute them, and some will even believe that they are doing God a favor by killing the disciples. He says, I didn't start out telling you that at the beginning of my ministry. The text, he says, because I was with you. Now, the reason he said that is because while Jesus walked the earth of the disciples, he was the focus of the animus of the enemies of of, of his ministry. When you read the Gospels, there was no plan to do away with Thaddeus. You don't read of any plan to assassinate Bartholomew. There were no plans at this point to kill Matthew. The only follower of Jesus that we know the the Pharisees wanted to do away with was Lazarus. Because let's face it, if you've got a man that was in the grave for three days and he's alive again walking, that's a difficult witness. But since Jesus is going to be gone, there will now be a bullseye on the disciples. So now he's preparing them for that. Now verse 5 seems a little bit curious. He says, now I'm going to him who sent me. Now he's referencing not just his death and burial, but also his ascension. He's going back to God the Father. Then he says something very curious. None of you ask me where are you going. Now that's curious because in the time that he's been in the upper room, he's been asked that question twice. We don't know how many hours they were together. Let's say maybe two, maybe three hours. But in that period in John chapter 13, Peter asked the question, Lord, where are you going? Because Jesus had said, I'm going away. Then in John 14, verse 6, it records the question of Thomas. Lord, how can we go with you? We don't know where you are going. So the question is, why does Jesus make this statement? And I think there are two answers to that. First is context. The second is to get their attention. Let me deal with the latter first. I think the words of Jesus here are a way to get their attention. That leads us into the context. You notice in verse 6, he says, Because I've said you're going to be suffering, and because I've told you I'm leaving, sorrow has filled your heart. Their minds are spinning with everything Jesus has told them. Not just the fact they're going to be suffering for the faith, but also spinning because, think, in the last two to three hours, he's... He's he's celebrated the Passover with them. He's washed their feet. He's told them what I've done to you, you do to one another, to love one another. He's told them that he's going away. He's told them they'll suffer and die. Don't you think their minds are trying to take all this in? And then as a way kind of to, to get their attention, he says, okay, you're losing focus of the main thing. You're not asking me where I'm going. Let's come back, come back now. Don't, don't leave me. You see, sorrow has a way of distracting us from what is truly important. They're grieving. Verse 6, sorrows filled your heart. They're hurting. They're grieving. They're wrestling with this. You and I both know the reality of how difficult times can distract us from what is really important. 
Throughout this life, we will experience times where we struggle to remain focused. Disappointments will cloud our thinking. Challenges will distract us from what we are to really be about because the pains of life have a way of causing us to focus inwardly with no thought about what God would have us do in the midst of a fallen world. You see, if we wait for the life to be free of challenges before we witness or before we live life according to God's purpose, we will go to our grave without witnessing or knowing the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we have a mission. A mission that should sustain us and focus us even in the difficult times of life. And when we seek to live according to that mission, rest assured we will know the persecutions of the enemy coming upon us. In my view, one of the most powerful films about World War II is the film Saving Private Ryan. It tells the story of a, a group of soldiers, a small platoon that's sent behind enemy lines into, into France to rescue one soldier. See, Private Ryan's brothers had been killed. The War Department had decided since Ryan was now an only child, he should be brought home to his mother. Now as Captain Miller leads this small group, this platoon behind enemy lines, they encounter a lot of challenges to say the least. In one battle taking place within a city, there's a German sniper up in a bell tower. A messenger is sent out from the Allied forces and that messenger is shot by the sniper. And he's laying on the ground. But he's not dead. And every time he moves... The sniper shoots him again. One of the soldiers under Captain Miller's command says, Why are they doing that? He's, he's been shot. He's wounded already. And Captain Miller says, As long as there is breath in his lungs, he carries the message. Church, let that be said of us. As long as there is breath in our lungs, whether times are good, we have a message. As long as there is breath in our lungs, when times are hard, we have a message. And Jesus brings us back to that reality that we should focus on the power the Spirit gives us to do what He has called us to do. We need to be reminded that the Spirit is at work and we should in many ways get ourselves out of the way. I love hearing stories of retired, by retired athletes telling about their glory days on the court, the field, or the course. One has always stuck with me, I heard many years ago, of Larry Bird when the time he played with the Celtics. Now, you know Bird, Larry Legend, was certainly great on talent and, and pretty high on arrogance. He was a little bit, well, not a little bit, he was a very cocky basketball player. His teammates told the story of when they were playing the Seattle Supersonics and the game was tied with three seconds left. The Celtics had the ball. Casey Jones calls a timeout and he gathers his players around him. They sit on the bench and he kneels down before them to diagram the play. This is what we're going to do and drawing all the picks and everything. And then he stops for just a moment before they go back on the court. And when Casey Jones paused, Larry Bird said, get me the ball and get out of the way. Let me do my thing. The Holy Spirit has a thing to do. And we need to be willing that in our lives to say, Lord, let there be less of me and more of your spirit. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of the gospel. You cannot disconnect the work of the Spirit from the work of the gospel. Where the Holy Spirit is, the gospel will be proclaimed and Jesus will be in the spotlight. This is where Satan works to distract the people of God. 
Often when we hear of the Holy Spirit, our first thinking goes to the, the difficult questions, the charismatic questions. Well, what about speaking in tongues? What about the interpretation of tongues? What about gifts of healing and prophecy? And we lose the proverbial forest for the trees. All the gifts of the Spirit, whether they be those that are the, the, the miraculous ones or the day-to-day -day gifts like administration, and those gifts all serve one purpose, to equip the church to share the gospel. That's the purpose. Some will say, well, well what about the, the fact the Spirit makes the church mature? The Spirit is to make the church grow up in the faith. You know what the sign of a mature church is? A mature church focuses on the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. That's maturity. Others will say, well, what about the fruit of the Spirit? Isn't the purpose of the Holy Spirit to cause the believer to demonstrate peace, patience, love, and joy? Yes, but the end of that fruit is this, that people will see demonstrated in our lives the power of the gospel to transform. Where the Holy Spirit is, the gospel will be preached and Jesus will be made much of. Now, I don't say that based upon my own opinion. I say that based upon verses 7 through 11. I draw your attention there to see, first of all, the primary work of the Spirit is to empower the proclamation of the gospel. Now, Jesus says, it's for your good that I go away because I'll send the helper to you. The helper is the Holy Spirit. Now verse 8, Jesus brings things a little bit more in focus. When the Spirit comes, He will bring conviction. That's the primary work of the Spirit. Now conviction there means to expose to the light, to bring to the light. You remember the old-timey cameras that actually had film in them and you had to open them up. You didn't want that film to be exposed to the light. Well, guess what? The darkness hates being exposed to the light. John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus said, The wicked hate the, hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Same word. He doesn't come to the light because he would be convicted of his works. Now, the Holy Spirit will work to bring conviction in three areas. You see them listed there, and not just listed, but the reason why is given. The Spirit will expose the light, will bring conviction in areas of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now the first is, the Holy Spirit will work in conviction in relation to sin, verse 9. Now please keep in mind that the primary sin in the Gospel of John is not to believe in Jesus. That is the root sin. To disbelieve in the Gospel message. You see, as Jesus is proclaimed in the world and through the church is how that proclamation takes place as it is empowered by the Spirit, the world is called to repentance. That is the gracious work of the Spirit. That's why John emphasized, Jesus said, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So as we preach, we are bringing conviction of sin because people realize they need Jesus. One of the great preachers in church history was a man by the name of George Whitfield. Incredible preacher. I don't say that because I heard him preach, but because I've read about it in the history books. 1790s, he's in America. Tens of thousands of people came to hear him preach. And I'm not just talking about in the course of his ministry. I'm talking about 10,000 people showing up in colonial America to hear this man preach as he stands in the middle of a field. In many ways, Whitfield was like the Apostle Paul. Anywhere he preached, there was either revival or a riot broke out. 
See, sometimes Whitfield wasn't treated very nice by those who heard his message. One uh, historian records how people didn't like his message since someone had brought a dead cat and began uh, threw a dead cat at him. Now, please, if you don't like the message, leave your felines at home. But one man of the many that was converted was a farmer by the name of Nathan Cole, Connecticut farmer. Nathan Cole left a journal. He told about what happened when he heard Whitfield preach, and he said these words, My hearing the good news of Jesus gave me a heart wound. Isn't that beautiful? When I heard the gospel, my heart was wounded. That's verse 9. The gospel's preached. He was convicted of sin. My heart was wounded. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. See, Nathan Cole brings us to the second work, the second part of the conviction of the Spirit. Look at verse 10. The Spirit will convict not just concerning sin, that we need a Savior, we need to believe in Jesus, but concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, I'll remind you that righteousness deals with the standard of what is right. It's connected with the word justification. It deals with how we can be right and pleasing to God. Prophet Isaiah is quoted by Paul, said, Our righteousness, our acts to be pleasing to God, apart from the Spirit, apart from regeneration, are like dirty rags. And that's where the problem lies. You see, the world that is in rebellion against God seeks to establish its own standard of righteousness. I referred to that last week, that in jettisoning truth, absolute truth of the scripture the world seeks to establish its own standard for what is right and good the spirit brings conviction of that to say that's not the true standard now notice the reason Jesus says the spirit will bring about conviction of righteousness he says because I go to the father and you will see me no longer see when Jesus walked the earth he was the standard of righteousness as he taught and as he preached, he revealed how the world's righteousness was lacking. So you take the Pharisees, for example. In the eyes of the, the world of Jerusalem, they were the standards of righteousness, dotting every scriptural I, crossing every spiritual T. But Jesus showed up and he said, you're not righteous at all because you're ignoring the weightier things of the law. Yeah, you go through the motions, but that in and of itself is not pleasing to God. God desires a heart for Him, a heart of compassion, loving justice and loving mercy. You see, Jesus was the standard of righteousness. But now He's going away. That's why the Spirit becomes the one who will convict about the standard of righteousness. What is truly right in the eyes of God? And the Spirit brings conviction in relation to judgment. Look at verse 11. He says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The word for judgment relates to discernment. It's connected with righteousness. It deals with how we determine right and wrong. How we discern what is false and accurate. How we make, work through the nuances. See, discernment can be very challenging. I'm reminded of this every time my wife decides she wants to paint a room. I like keeping things simple. Paint it blue, red, yellow, white. But when you go to pick out paint, 
It's never that easy, is it? Oh, no. There's royal blue, dark blue, midnight blue, twilight blue. There's blue blue, medium blue blue, and dark blue blue. And it drives me crazy. Keep it simple. You see, people can have discerning eyes to know that's royal blue and that's midnight blue. There's a difference. See, our world has lost the distinction of being able to determine right and wrong. Now, that's why Jesus connects it with the ruler of this world is judged. You know why the world's judgment is askew, while it's not calibrated correctly? It's because of Satan. Satan works to deceive so that what we often think is right is not really pleasing to God. So guess what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and, and, and brings about correct judgment because Satan has already been judged. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, according to John chapter 12, he says that the ruler of this world is cast down. In other words, the lies of Satan are destroyed by the truth. Now, how does this conviction come about? How does this conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment happen? I would draw your attention back to chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, He will bear witness about me. As Jesus Christ is lifted up, as the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit will do His work of convicting of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. It's not up to us to necessarily go around finger pointing and saying this is wrong, this is wrong, but to preach the gospel, to hold up the truth, to live the truth, and trust the Holy Spirit to bring conviction according to His power and the will of the Father. Now to do this, we need to know Christ. We can't proclaim that which we do not know. And that is why the work of the Spirit is also highlighted in verses 12 through 15 as guiding us to know Jesus more. Notice what Jesus says. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. That's another example of grace. I've got a lot more to tell you, disciples, but already you're staggering under the weight of what I've told you. But don't fear. When the Spirit of truth comes, the truthful Spirit, He will guide you into all the truth. Notice He doesn't say all truth, but all the truth. Other time that phrase is used in John is in John 14, 6. Where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the Spirit's going to guide us to know Jesus. And He's going to do this because He doesn't speak of His own authority, but He speaks what He hears. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not go rogue. He's going to speak the things of Jesus. He will glorify Jesus by taking what belongs to Jesus and declaring it to us. And look at verse 15. All that belongs to Jesus is everything that belongs to the Father. So He's going to take what belongs to the Father and the Spirit's going to show it to us. How does He do that? The Scripture. He lets us know who God is. He lets us know who Jesus is. So if you and I want to dive deeper into Jesus, deeper into God, we need the Holy Spirit to guide us that we might know those realities. That's why if you are ever around those who highlight the work of the Spirit and Jesus is not mentioned, it's not the Holy Spirit they're talking about. The Holy Spirit exists to guide people to Jesus. And we need that. I've shared with you before, I guess you could maybe more accurately say confess to you, that in the last three years I've become addicted to the game of golf. You probably can tell it in my illustrations, like with the one you're about to hear. 
not only do I enjoy playing it, but being the book lover I am, I enjoy reading about golf. It's history, things that are happening now. And I recently finished a book by Rick Raleigh. The book is entitled Who's Your Caddy? Great name. One of the chapters of the book is dedicated and tells the story of the Blind Golfers Association. It's a real association. Their motto is, you don't have to see it to tee it. And they're good. Their Tiger Woods is a man by the name of Pat Brown, playing four times at the Mission Hills Country Club in Palm Springs. Pat Brown, who, by the way, is completely blind, shot in his 70s. That's humbling. You know how they do it? They rely on their caddy to guide them. The caddy will help set them up, say, okay, now turn your club face this way, set your shoulders here. On the putting green, the caddy will walk beside them, and the, the blind golfer will carry their putter and come and fill the, fill the flag post and then turn around, and the caddy will guide them back to their ball. And the whole time, the golfer is counting his steps back to the ball and getting a feel of the greens with their feet. It's amazing. But a good blind golfer has a good caddy, a good guide. You and I are blind, and we need the Spirit to guide us. That's why we need to humbly come before the Lord, saying, Lord, you let the Spirit work that I might know more of Jesus. And a sign that you're knowing more of Jesus is that you will be a witness for Jesus. Remember, the Spirit exists to bear witness about Jesus to highlight the cross don't forget the power of the cross the Holy Spirit works that the cross will be glorified N.T. Wright is a Bible scholar and pastor he's an Anglican who lives in, in England but he has been a prolific writer tells the story about an archbishop who was the mark of three practical jokers, three teenage guys who decided that it would be funny to mock this bishop and to mock the church, that they would go in one at a time, sit down with the bishop, and begin a confession of all these horrible sins that were just completely made up. And then they would just laugh as they left to just mock the church. It's the only reason. First one came in and did his thing, left. The second one comes in and... The bishop's a smart guy. He starts to figure out what's going on. And when the third teenager came in, he was prepared. This time, as the teenager sat down, the bishop kind of maneuvered himself so that he was between the teenager and the door. The teenager was going to leave. He was going to have to go through the bishop. The bishop sat there and he listened to these false confessions, all these made-up lies that they had done. And before the kid could leave, the bishop said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the front of the church, to the altar. And I want you to look at Christ on the cross there. And I want you three times to look at him and say, I know what you've done for me, but I don't care. Thinking this would add a little bit of, of, of highlight to their joke. The young man walks to the front and he looks at the cross and he says, I know what you've done for me and I don't care. Second time, I know what you've done for me and I don't care. And the third time he starts to say it, tears begin to come down his eyes. And he falls on his knees and asks Jesus to forgive him. N.T. Wright tells that story and he says, that's, he goes, I know that story, he says, because I was that teenage boy. 
I was the one that came to mock Jesus until I came face to face with the cross. The Holy Spirit will empower us to preach the cross. Church, let's be faithful. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. While we're not doing formal invitations, that does not mean you cannot respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit may be moving in your life right now, encouraging you to be that witness. To hold up the cross. You may be in a place in your life where there are things that are happening that are outside of your control. And you're wondering, Lord, what would you have me do? And very strongly yet gently, the Spirit is saying, talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Lift up the cross. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And after this prayer, we will stand and sing, O oh Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus and thank you for the Spirit. Thank you for the Spirit who indwells us, that works through us to complete the mission of Christ. Father, help us to be willing participants in the work of the Spirit. Forgive us for where we've become self-centered or, or focused only on our own issues rather than saying, Lord, times are hard, but the gospel truth remains. Help us to be faithful and empower us. Empower us by your Spirit to spread the gospel. In the name of Jesus, I pray.